The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hey, Dana. Hi, Mark. So what is a peak? It's the top of a mountain. Okay. Makes me think of the Three Peaks Challenge here in the UK, where you hike to the top of three separate peaks all in one day. Okay. Have Pretty you done intense. it? I've never done it. I've wanted to do it, but I, I don't think I'm I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> Next summer. In the recording studio too much, not in the gym enough. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, so how about some other peaks? What other kinds of peaks are there in terms of maybe like sales or usage of stuff? Well, I think of I think of Polaroids, how they were really popular there for a bit and then maybe have dropped off in everybody else's house except for mine. My kids love Polaroids. Okay. So what t- what other types of things have hit a peak? I know that we could talk about like landlines for telephones or anything like that. Anything that was really popular and then maybe sales dropped off or peak also makes me think of the phrase peak oil, which you may have heard of, which has to do with actually the extraction of oil from the ground. Yeah. And well, the idea is that there might not be as much demand for oil in the future. And so maybe we've hit a peak. Who knows? or peak for really a lot of other things. And one of those things is peak car. Um, so the idea there is the concept that, you know, we've reached as many cars as we're going to get out, out out there on the road. Do you think that's true? I think it could be true. Mm-hmm. Because Does it feel true? I think it might feel more true for urbanites than other people. Yeah, I think you're right. So today we're going to be talking about a, a research note called Peak Car by our head of mobility, Ali Azadi, uh, who's going to help us get into this concept and see if we are actually at a peak for automobiles out on the road. Please note that the NEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor. And I am Dana Perkins, and this is Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Ali, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This note is titled Peak Car Question Mark. So theoretically, I should be saying Peak Car, which is a bit punchy, to be honest. You, you're, you're enticing people with a cliffhanger. Jump in because we've got a big question mark. So let me ask you, have we reached Peak Car? And if not, when do we reach Peak Car? So whenever people predict something reaching the peak, it's, it's always turns out to be generally not true. So if you remember back in the day where people were talking about peak oil supply, now we're talking about uh, when we were writing this note, there was a little bit of a sense that auto sales are slowing down globally. So in last year, um, China's uh, auto sales declined for the first time in 20 years. This year, so far, we have seen auto sales declining in many major markets in the US, in Europe, in India. So there has been a little bit of a sense that maybe something fundamental is changing this time around. So that's why we put the question mark. This is all auto sales you're seeing pretty much across the world, and this is including trucks, SUVs. Like, what, what, well, How do you define autos? Good question. So here we are only talking about cars. So basically things that individual consumers buy to move around, but we're not talking about trucks. But you are talking about SUVs. SUVs that people buy, yes. Okay. And individual trucks. Like a flatbed truck that you would throw your stuff in, just not a lorry, right? right? Yeah, it's the, the reason I ask is because people aren't buying sedans anymore. Yeah, so, so you're also seeing consumers' tastes shift. Right. So in the U.S., pickup trucks are very popular. 
outside of the US, you have some markets like Th- Thailand that pickup trucks are popular, but SUVs in general everywhere are popular, mm-hmm. although their types are quite different. So there's a shift a little bit from smaller, medium, basically sedans to more and more SUVs. There's a variety of reasons for that. Some argue that people feel safer in them, but some of these also uh, car makers like SUVs because they make more margins on them. So as they make more SUV models available, consumers buy them more, it sort of ends up reinforcing a nice cycle. Okay, so sales around the world are, I don't know, weak. Are they weak by a lot? Is it just a kind of a one-off for the year or is it kind of a trend? Would you say if it's more of a trend? So this is what we were trying to address. Okay. Um, and in our view, in most markets, you're going to see sales recover. There are a few markets, for example, Japan, where demographics are essentially the main culprit. You have a declining total population coupled with an aging society. Mm-hmm. So essentially, fundamental demand is going down. But if you look at other markets, say China or say US, we still expect sales to gradually recover. Uh, In China in particular, the motorization rate is still relatively low. A lot of the decline that you're seeing this year has got to do with macroeconomic factors. So is this something that you would see in the longer term as a bit cyclical? Because we saw a big drop in, what was it, 2008? And we're seeing another drop now. So is this almost a decadal thing where we can expect that or is it something else at play? Sure. You're absolutely right that car sales historically have been somewhat cyclical. They do respond to economic cycles. Now, some sometimes people make the mistakes of assuming that GDP growth rates and car sales are uh, one-to-one correlated. The correlation between new car sales and GDP, there is a bit of a weak correlation there, but what really correlates very well with GDP growth rates or to be more accurate, GDP per capita growth rates, it's actually the total distance that the fleet drives every year. The reason for that is, let's say the financial crisis is a good example. What happened in the aftermath of that is you had a lot of people losing their job. And in a country like US, a lot of people drive to go to their work. So once you've lost your job and you don't have an income, first of all, you're not going to work, but also you have to conserve your money. So you're driving less. So historically, there's a much stronger correlation between GDP per capita growth rates as well as the total distance that the fleet drives. From that relationship, then you can start calculating, okay, depending on how the GDP does. GDP or unemployment rates, because it seems like you're tying it to steady income and then having a car. So you could make it much more granular and you could start breaking it apart, uh, those factors. Um, Having said that, from a macroeconomic perspective, the GDP per capita seems to be a good factor. You could obviously go much more sophisticated. There's other issues. It depends on your uh, urban versus rural population. What's the composition of the economy? Mm. So you can add more and more elements of making it much more sophisticated. But what we found out in this note is actually for a country like US, if you look at historical relationship, GDP per capita and the total distance driven by the fleet works out really nicely. It's actually quite beautiful. It's a constant number, which then you can use and then you can rely on external forecasts like what the World Bank says for the GDP and what the UN population division says for population to then come out with a view of how much travel you expect the fleet to do in the future. 
we're, and you're seeing global commonalities, which I think is really interesting because each of these markets on their own seems unique. Can you just quickly outline what other countries you're looking at here and then maybe pick the one that you, you, you want to expand on? So we've tried to cover all the major markets. Um, so we have individual forecasts for U.S., uh, China, India, Japan, Korea, Germany, UK, France, and Europe as a whole. Um, we also do Australia because our team in Australia is very interested in uh, knowing what will happen in their market. And then we also look at trying to model, uh, forecast the rest of the world, which is a fairly big uh, market category. In terms of the differences, while there is commonality in the sense that from a macroeconomic perspective, you can make an assumption that in most markets, the total distance driven by the fleet is correlated with GDP per capita. There's a very different starting point for each country. So take the US. US has one of the highest motorization rates in the world, meaning that people have a lot of cars. Mm -hmm. In many cases, households have more than one car. In a country like the US, if you look at your fleet on the street, how much of it is owned by individuals versus how much of it is in taxis or ride-hailing companies or car-sharing companies, those numbers in the U.S. are heavily in favor of the privately owned vehicles. So if you look at the demand for transportation, so if you look at it last year, the total distance traveled by the car fleet, in the U.S., something around 97% of that distance was traveled by the cars that people own. Only about 2.6%, 3% was by taxis, car sharing, and ride hailing. Even though ride hailing, you think of Uber and Lyft and being the leaders, their contribution to the total distance traveled by the fleet is still relatively low. You go to a country like India, where private vehicle ownership is very low, overall motorization rate is still very low, the relative contribution of taxis as well as hailed cars like Ola and again Uber operates in India, their contribution is a lot higher. In India last year, we estimate that of the distance traveled by the fleet, roughly one-third hmm. was by these shared modes of mobility. Very different, right? Quite extreme. And then if you go to a country like Japan, where public transit infrastructure is really good, and taxis are relatively expensive, and regulation prevents uh, private ride hailing, then the number contributed by these shared modes is even lower, so it's below 1%. So there's a very wide geographical difference around your starting point. Which really has to do with how do you get around today and is this alternative better than how you get around today? So in India, I suppose it is better than maybe a bus or walking or biking or even I've seen multiple people climbed on kind of a three-wheeler before. And are, are the ve these vehicles, are these shared ride services replacing that stuff or is it replacing mass transit, the buses and subways? Very good question. One clarification um, around our forecast. So this time around, we were only trying to forecast the car sales. So we were very much focused on the four-wheeler. But you're hitting the nail in the sense that when people talk about these new shared mobility services, there's always a question around, are these complementary or are these competitive with existing modes? If you look at Uber and Lyft and who did they disrupt today, in the U.S., Uber and Lyft primarily have di disrupted taxis and public transit. Essentially, in many uh, municipalities like New York, like San Francisco, there was a decline in ridership on public transit. 
So from a public policy perspective, uh, given that they also increase congestion in those cities, this becomes a bit of an issue. But if you go over to India or Southeast Asia where Grab and Gojek operate, in those markets, you had a large segment of the population being underserved by existing uh, available options. So private vehicle ownership is out of the reach of many segments in the population. It's just simply too expensive. Public transit is not enough. And the available taxis or even the tuk-tuks and the two-wheelers that were there, they were still not enough. There was not a good way of balancing supply and demand. What Ola, what Uber's India operation, and what Grab and Gojek have done is essentially they have brought access to mobility to a large segment of the population in those markets that was underserved. So they're acting as a very nice complementary solution to what existed and even enabling social mobility. So you could imagine people who wanted to get a job, but in their local, within their walking distance, there was no job. Now that person can actually afford to travel a little bit further away and get a job. So in this world of now digital ride hailing, we've created some jobs and you actually, in this note, have a little part where you say the holy grail for digital hailing services is the realization of robo-taxis. Um, I don't particularly want the Terminator to be driving me around, <laughs> uh, but if the way I see it is you're talking about job creation and people themselves buying cars. The fleet is not owned by these ride-hailing services. It's owned by the individual. Where, who's going to own the cars if they're robo-taxis? Sure. So again, here we should clarify that um, there is dis differences in each geography. If you look at Uber and Lyft in uh, North America or in Europe, um, so Uber operates in Europe as well as its European competitors, right now they're not profitable. And if you look at their losses, the number one cost that they have is the driver pay. So that's the part that it's still proving very challenging for them. Now, they, they, they argue that they'll be able to reduce their auto cost, improve operational efficiency, and be able to try to improve their profitability by controlling the auto cost. The jury is still out whether there's enough of auto cost that they can cut while keeping the driver. In markets like Europe and North America, well, driver pay, even though people argue driver pay is really low, it's still it's a little bit of a problem in, in the case of the economics of making those companies profitable. So if you replace those with autonomous vehicles, depending on what the capital cost of the autonomous vehicles is, which you're alluding to, you could argue that you're essentially getting rid of this operational cost that you always have. So if you think about if you are Uber and you want to scale the number of rides you're giving, you still have to pay the drivers more and more and more. Whereas if you have an autonomous vehicle that can go around 24 hours, then you're essentially reducing that operational cost that you're paying the drivers. It's a big capital investment. And I assume the insurance is covered by the drivers as opposed to these other companies. The big difference between being a platform and an owner of assets, right? While you're right that the capital cost would be high, the capital cost would be more of a one-off payment. So as you increase the utilization, that doesn't linearly increase. Whereas with drivers, it's essentially a linear relationship mm -hmm. that increases. So that, that's for those markets. There is this belief that if you have autonomous vehicles, you'll be able to do. But the reason we call this, by the way, the Holy Grail was the Holy Grail was never found. Um, so there is this... Even by Indiana Jones? He found it. 
He found it. But yes, okay, fine. It's fiction. Wait, so this is BNF's first vehicle sales forecast. Is that correct? That's right. So in that, are you giving a hint at to what you think the the outcome will be for robo-taxis? You know, you're less optimistic, it seems. I think we are realistic. So, <laughs> so we okay. do give a forecast in, in this view. And in our forecast for the next 10 years, so from now until 2029, we expect that you will have less than 250,000 uh, robo-taxis on the road. Not enough to make a meaningful difference in sales. From a quantitative perspective, that may seem that this is very low, it is still meaningful from the perspective of the ride-hailing companies. Utilization. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. As well as automakers. Yeah, so okay. if you're an automaker, particularly if you're a mass-market automaker, if you look at Uber and Lyft in the U.S., the most popular car that Uber and Lyft drivers drive today in the U.S. is a used Prius. Yeah. Because its upfront cost is relatively low. It has good fuel economy, so the operation cost is really low. So if you're Toyota, you really care about that. Yeah. And that's why Toyota is also investing in Uber ATG. So they're working together on developing autonomous vehicle technology. Longer term, by 2040, we expect that about 7% of the load, so again, looking at the total distance that the fleet drives in 2040, we expect 7% of that to be carried by autonomous vehicles. 7% may sound relatively low. Keep in mind, if you look at the total distance the car fleet drove last year, only 5% of that total distance was by shared mobility. So we expect that 5% in total to grow to 19%. And of that 19%, about one third of it will be autonomous. Two thirds of it will still be human driven. Now you may argue, why would in 2040 still be human driven? And it goes back to what Dana, you were alluding to earlier. In markets like India or Southeast Asia or Africa or also, even in developed economies, say rural uh, United States or rural Europe, from a cost and technological perspective, it will still not, we don't expect it to be feasible to rely on autonomous vehicles. Oh, okay. So if you're in rural Texas, for example, the utilization rate is still relatively low. Also, you have to make sure that your technology can adapt to that environment. Now, rural Texas, to be fair, the weather is not that bad, but you go to rural Wisconsin, snows a lot. So you run into a lot of practical issues. Um, and that's where, while we do expect the technology to improve a lot, we're still, uh, from what's known today, there's still a lot of challenges that remain to be resolved. About halfway through, Pete Carr, question mark, uh, you get into this place of uncertainties. Sure. And it seems like there is so much to wrap your arms around in terms of what is actually influencing car ownership rates as opposed to just, do I want to be on the tube today or do I want to be in my own car and can I find parking? So there are three things you outline under these fundamental changes to actually how people and, and more importantly, goods are moving around at the local level, but really commonly around the world. Can you outline what those three areas are? So one, as you alluded earlier on, is around sort of black swan type. So financial crisis, things like that, or you could put in wars and things like that. So those definitely impact. And those are something that like, unfortunately, we are mortal analysts. We can't forecast those things. The second one uh, and the third one, which are areas that we're going to do a lot more work on in the future is one is around the whole impact of e-commerce. So if you think about e-commerce and how you're now buying your daily necessities, you're essentially more and more eliminating the need to drive to the grocery store or the need to go to 
Costco on the weekend or something like that. So those are areas that could fundamentally impact uh, people's need for cars. A lot of times when people talk about wanting to own a car is I want to carry something. So if you eliminate that part and you don't need to carry heavy loads, then you may argue that maybe you can rely on a bicycle. Part of the challenge today is like if you look at the historical correlation that I mentioned that we use for forecasting, the impact of e-commerce on that historical correlation has not appeared yet. Uh-huh. So will this end up in... But do you guys see it as see it appearing? It potentially could. So this is an area that we are, we are looking at quite okay. extensively. This, and this ties to the second one, which I mentioned briefly, the bicycle one. So the question of micromobility. Oh, yeah. So micromobility, to define it, is basically stand-up scooters, electric assist bi- bicycles, which are provided on a shared platform. So you don't even have to own it yourself. And the reason this is an interesting area is pick United States. If you look at the statistics on how cars are used in the United States, if you look at the numbers from recent, um, so the last couple of years, roughly 60% of the average car trip is less than six miles. Within that, about half of it is less than three miles. So essentially, it's people driving the car, the big SUV just going down the street to buy some stuff. Now, those are distances that if you're within less than two miles, you can easily do with a stand-up scooter. If it's less than, if it's between two miles and six miles, you can do with an electric assist bicycle. And we have seen a lot of money go to these shared micromobility applications. So Baird was Baird and Lime were both some of the fastest unicorns ever. I think Baird, for Baird, it took it less than a year to have a valuation of over a billion dollars, which is quite remarkable. Mm. And there's this idea, one of the famous um, um, sort of gurus of micromobility, Horace Didier, likes to call it the concept of unbundling the car. So essentially, you're looking at how people use cars for different applications. There are some of those applications that you can actually use other modes of transport. Are you seeing this outside of major urban centers, though, where a car sometimes comes with more hassle than it's worth? Because mm-hmm. I can't see, for example, my brother-in-law in Kentucky hopping on a micro-mobility scooter and running to the store when he's got a car already sitting in the driveway. That yeah. has AC. That has, has AC in the summertime. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are a lot of open questions. One is, as you're alluding to, is the rural versus urban, which is a very valid one. So mm-hmm. it, it, it again goes down uh, around your what are the distances that we we're discussing. The other one that I would like to point out is, of course, weather. So these things initially, particularly the stand-up scooters, took off in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, California is sunny, it's relatively dry. But what about, say, winter in New York? But they also took off in Paris, right? Where it rains a lot. Yeah. So now we are starting. So this is. So thank you for making Sorry. my point. <laughs> um, there was initially some skepticism, which was like, "Oh, these California VCs are just putting money behind something that's not going to go around the world." And what we've seen actually is now going around the world. And you have also, while this, some people are think that this is a California thing, actually shared bicycles. Uh, these platforms took over China a lot earlier, and then mm. from China went around the world. So we see it has legs. No pun intended. Wheels, right? Uh, wheels. But the the question that's still very hard to answer is how much of that demand is going to get attributed to these services. What we have already seen is that there have been two winters already since some of these new companies were launched, and they've survived those. And even in winters, there was still a bit of demand for these services. 
Um, so we do see that it has legs in it. It's just a question of how much of the demand will get shifted to them. And car makers are becoming very interested in them as well. So car makers are looking at it. This could potentially be a competitor. Is there something we could do about it? Should we invest in it? Uh, so there's a lot of interest around this last mile and this yes. kind of space close to your home. No. And there's this other category that you actually go into, which is which are autonomous shuttles yep. that look like they might fill the same need and maybe get around some of the weather issues. My question is, though, are, are, where, where are they? I've not seen any yet. And are they taking off or are they a lot of potential right now? Very good question. So when I was talking about the robotaxi, that was the idea of that you have an autonomous vehicle, which is kind of similar to your taxis today. It's on public roads. It's mixed with traffic that uh, still includes human drivers. So they, they're more or less very similar to car and cars, but essentially you replace the driver with that. In the autonomous shuttle case, you're talking about low-speed applications where you have a vehicle that's designated to a specific area. The technical term is geofenced, to make it fancy. So you can think of, for example, in the city area in just London, like, uh, or, or if you're from down under, you would say the CBD, the, the uh, business district, basically, central business district, or a university campus, or think about airports. If you have low-speed geofenced applications, the technology is already available. There are companies like uh, two French companies, Navia and Easy Miles. There's U.S. companies like May Mobility, which, by the way, May Mobility, Toyota's Venture Arms has invested it. They're making these sort of like shuttles. They're essentially things that you could uh, you have already seen at airports, like sometimes those shuttles that you take at airports to go, but now they're automated. With those, what you could argue is that essentially they're a form of public transit, but they're much more flexible. You don't have to worry about, okay, if you want to run this thing 24 hours, mm. what are we going to do about the drivers? Uh, they're also a lot more flexible than, say, subways or autonomous monorails. For them, the main questions around deployment is actually much more about local policy, or a better word would be local politics. Let's say you want to deploy it in a city like London. How would TFL's labor union respond to this? Because essentially you're talking about mm -hmm. a competitive proposition that could have an impact on jobs. Is there a chance this is an area that sort of business, which is private technically, could expand into? Because I can see people with their local travel card getting a little bit frustrated to have an additional fee tacked on to the end. If you have, so this all comes down to which type of road you're uh, considering. So one of the really interesting deployments around these technologies is in retirement communities in the United States. So in, in Florida, for example, there's a retirement community called the Villages. Actually, most retirement communities in the U.S. are called the Villages. I don't know why. But one of the biggest ones has a partnership with Voyage, one of these new companies that's uh, developing this technology. And there, there, most of the roads are private. So the retirement community can decide what they want to do with it. And they've already had this partnership where they're deploying them. So yes, I agree with you that you could have, if the if you have large businesses that have rights uh, over the roadways. Like then the they university could, campus. Yes. But in, in cities, it becomes much more complicated. So we've had a chance to jump into a few parts of this note. And I know that we've not gotten all of the stories out of you. So people can read more if they want. My question is, this seems like it's the beginning of a lot more questions that have been raised. 
What is next in your research pipeline? You're absolutely right. Uh, there's a lot of other factors we need to consider. So the first thing we're doing is to better understand how modal shifts might happen. So that question of how much of the demand will go to micromobilities. We want to actually look deeper into what happened historically. So one of our team members right now is writing a note looking at the UK since the 1950s, when initially everyone was relying on trains and like public, and then when the cars became more and more popular, how modal shift happened there. So we're going to do a historical deep dive on the UK, then we're going to expand it to more countries and better understand how these shifts happen. Obviously, technology plays a role, but a lot of it also comes down to policy and cultural values even. And based on those, try to then come up with scenarios of how it may play out in the future. Because we as a business do a lot of forecasts, so I guess you've got to look back before you can look forward, right? You're absolutely right. Um, Ali, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dana and Mark. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.